Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for this wonderful morning. And thank you, Father, that we are healthy and strong enough to be here in the presence of others in the faith, present before you and your Holy Spirit, and eagerly awaiting, Father, the teaching of your word. I pray, Father, the teacher this morning would be, as always, your Holy Spirit, that though I may have prepared words and taken time to determine how I might approach this text, Father, the the true teaching is by your Spirit, so I pray, Father, that you would be active through your Spirit and that the teaching that takes place would be under his guidance and care, that the listening would be under his agency as well, that ears would be open, hearts would be ready. Father, I pray that uh, as we've gone into this letter in the weeks past and today and in the weeks to come, that you would be bringing us closer not just to an understanding but to you yourself, to an awareness of you in our lives and of your call in our lives. I pray, Father, you would be giving us a bold heart to step out, to do things differently, Father, to step away from sin where you've convicted us, to step, step forward, Father, and work to bring others to know you, that we would not be just hearers of your word, but rather hearers and doers. Father, we thank you for this time again and ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are continuing in this theme of living in the world as a foreigner. Uh, Let's go back just briefly, as you may have been here in weeks past to remember, but maybe not. Let's go through briefly what we've done. Peter began the letter very quickly by mentioning that we were both two things, if you remember. We were both foreigners in this world, strangers, aliens, he called us, and we were chosen. And then he promptly went into the first part of his letter explaining what chosen should mean. If you're chosen by God, what does that mean? Among other things, it meant that we were called out. We were to be living a holy life, different from the rest, because we were set apart. The word holy means set apart. Then he went into a discussion of what it means that we are a foreigner. Now, we're finishing that discussion today. Foreigner, if you remember, started with the concept that we were, again, to be set apart from the world, an ambassador of Christ, living in the world as if he were us, so that we might represent him. And therefore, we set aside lust. Secondly, we were to honor and obey authority in our lives, particularly governmental authority, because that was the honoring thing to do. And then lastly, last week we looked at three specific walks of life that were uh, common walks of life. They gave an opportunity for Peter to give example of where honoring authority really comes down, you know, sort of, as they say, the rubber meets the road in our lives. One was in the case of servants, which we understood generally to be that of an employee or anyone under the care and guidance of a master in any way. And how does a servant show that they are a foreigner, that they are different as an ambassador of Christ? Well, they obey their master, not as though the master were truly the one they were obeying, but rather they obey Christ, that they worked for the Christ that they know rather than for the master they may see in front of them. Secondly, we looked at wives. And wives in their role within the marriage, they were to be honoring to their Lord by how they submitted to the authority of their husband and how they honored the authority and and supported their husband. Again, not because he was deserving of authority and honor, not because he does the right thing necessarily, but because the wife is obeying Christ in his command to submit. Finally, as the husband, we looked at what it meant to be submissive to authority as a husband, the authority of Christ. That just as Christ gave himself up for the church, considering nothing for himself, but gave everything up, so the man should look at his role in the family as one of self-sacrificial service. Putting the needs of the family and of the wife, particularly above his own, serving her as Christ served the church. That was submission to authority in that it was submitting to Christ's expectations on the husband. As Christ modeled leadership, so should the man follow So in all three areas of life, we had a good example of what it meant to be honoring, to be submitted to authority in our daily walk. 
Look at where Peter goes now, chapter 3, verse 8. He says, to sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. Uh, Verse 8 is a summation of Peter's argument, going all the way back to where he began this argument in chapter 2, verse 11. Now, I know it's a summation because Peter says to sum up. Now, I want you to know, that's the kind of insight you're paying me for. That's why you brought me up here from San Antonio. He says to sum up. It's not that hard, is it? He's summing up all that he's been speaking of here in this issue, in this area of being a foreigner, of being an ambassador to Christ. If you think about it, this statement follows that section on servants, wives, and husbands, which means that although you can divide up the body of Christ in some ways, you can say, for example, that there are husbands in the body of Christ, wives in the body of Christ, there are servants, there are masters, etc., He's trying to pull this, pull this together so that we don't understand this to be separate instructions for separate people. Remember what we said last week. There's a common set of principles here that apply to all believers. There are common attributes here for the Christian in fellowship. And these common attributes, which he just described in verse 8, they will mark us as different. They will mark us as foreigners. It's interesting to look at how he chose to write verse 8. Now, you wouldn't know this necessarily. I I didn't know this at first. But when you look at the Greek behind these words in in verse 8, there are five adjectives used in in this verse. Harmonious, homophron in the Greek. Secondly, sympathetic, that's supatis. Next one, brotherly or loving, that's philadelphos. Not philadelphia, philadelphos, that's a different word. There's the next one, kind or tenderhearted, that's usplagnos in the Greek. Humble in spirit is the last one, tenaiphophron. Those words in the Greek are very unique. In fact, four of those five words don't appear anywhere else in the Bible. So here we have one verse in the Bible in which there are four out of five adjectives that are completely unique words to the New Testament. The fifth one only appears one other time in the chap- in fifth chapter of Ephesians. So when you look at this verse in the Greek, if you spoke Greek, if we read Greek naturally, we would take immediate note of the fact that he picked five very unique words. It is almost as if Peter is working really hard here to pick words that are not casual, they're not everyday words. He went out of his way to find very unique language and he put them together in this this interesting verse. Because of that, and because of the very interesting picture that these five words paint, I want to take a little bit of time to look at it. Now, you know and I know we've gone through this now five weeks. We've moved all the way into the middle part of chapter three. I don't tend to stay on one verse very long. I try to keep moving. But today we're going to spend a little time on this verse. Now, we have plenty more to do as well. But if Peter has taken so much time to direct us in this way with these interesting words, how are we to look at them? Well, we're to take a moment as well and be patient and look at them in careful ways. Starting with harmonious or like-minded. Peter is asking the church here to do something very specific. He's asking us to think in sort of a compatible way or in a like-minded way. But this is not a unity of thought. This is unity of purpose. This is unity in action. Harmony in action is the implicit sense here of this word. It doesn't mean we all have the same opinion. I want you to understand this because this is something I think churches struggle with everywhere I go. Everywhere I go. The reality is, the hard reality of living in this world now, in a fallen world, with our flesh kind of complicating things for us, getting in the way of what we might know and understand. Our opinions, our attitudes, our past history, 
All the things we bring to who we are get in the way of our ability to understand Scripture perfectly. Paul compares it to looking through a dim glass, like a window pane that's not been cleaned in a long time. And so you can kind of make something out, but then again, it's not very clear to you sometimes. That's the sense. That's the way we will always understand Scripture. Now, I'm not limiting what the Holy Spirit is capable of doing in teaching us. I'm only pointing out the obvious. We don't all have it. We don't have all of it 100%. There's some things we know well, some things we don't know so well. I would believe, I tend to believe, that's God's plan, at least in the sense of how He works through it to do good for the body of Christ. He ensures that I need you and you need me. He ensures that the body of Christ is better gathered than solitary. Because in the gathering, we have the benefit of what you know and what I know pulled together. So it is not as though He's designed it because He doesn't want you to know the truth. I believe He's working through the reality of our fallen nature in this way so that He could cause us to have benefit in gathering together. So harmonious here is not to say that you and I can only gather together and be united in faith because we happen to agree 100% up and down the line on doctrine. Now, there are some doctrinal fundamental issues within the church that are non-negotiable. And I'm not going to take time now to kind of list all those because it would be off the point and I think it would take too long. But understand there are some things that if you cannot find agreement with, you are dealing potentially with an issue that defines what it means to be a Christian and therefore it's non-negotiable. You have to reach common ground. But for every one of those, there's at least a hundred that are not absolutes, that do not uh, require agreement in order for you to be harmonious, like-minded, in action, and in purpose. And what would those purposes be? What are those things we are to be like-minded in, in terms of action? Well, to put it simply, to glorify God and to deliver the gospel. We are to be unified in that sense. You know, if you look around the world today, there's a lot of churches where people come into the building and spend a lot of time doing things that fundamentally don't directly support either of those two endeavors. It's a very me-centered approach to church, where I got what I need out of it, I've plugged in for what I need, and I go home and take it with me. But there's no glorification of God, not in the moment, not in their lives, and there's no opportunity to take what they've learned or benefited from and go outside and bring the gospel to someone who hasn't heard it. If we're not doing those two things, let me ask you, why do we exist? Why bother? Why not have Christ return tomorrow? He's only delaying His return so that these two things might take place in His absence through the church, to our own benefit. Not because He needs us, but because He wants to work through us to our benefit. So the church is called to be harmonious and like-minded so as to accomplish those things and not to allow differences of opinion or individual thought to become impediments to doing the very thing that we've gathered to do. The body of Christ, we know, is one unit. We've said this last week, if you remember. We're not to find distinctions uh, in this unit before the Lord. There is no us and them. It's interesting, you know, I've had the benefit and the blessing and the time God's given me to teach to go to a lot of different churches around the country and, and all kinds of denominations. You name it, I've probably taught there. And you know what I have found more than anything? You're not as different as you think you are. For all the things that we tend to highlight as our distinctives or our differences, you're only fooling yourselves. I'm only fooling myself. When we sit there and call ourselves one thing or another, I've even found that today, non-denominational is actually a denomination because you all do it the same way. You ever notice that? Non-denominational churches pretty much all do the same thing the same way. It might as well just be a denomination. No matter what the sign says above the door, you're either a Christian or you're not. You're either in the body of Christ or you're not. Here's a trivia question. What's the definition of a Christian? The scriptural definition out of Romans is he who has the Spirit of God is the Son of God, the sons of God. 
Those who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are Christian. Those who do not are not. That's the bottom line. And God gives his spirit to those who receive the gospel. So where you go, you find the spirit, you're in the church. No matter what they say or what they put on the door or what they believe. And they're going to have error in their doctrine. I guarantee you. Everyone does. They're going to have mistakes in their practice. Everyone does. They're going to have sin in their fellowship. Everyone does. Pursue holiness. Pursue knowledge. Pursue benefits in your, in your ministry. But on the other hand, don't make that a dividing point. Be harmonious. Look for an opportunity to be an effective instrument in the world as an ambassador by joining together. Ecclesiastes says it this way, chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor, the labor of the church, in our case. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Now, if Peter asks us to be harmonious in this sense, in action senses, how do you do that? I mean, it's one thing to agree we need to do it. It's another thing altogether to say, how? How do you do that? Perhaps we imitate one another. Perhaps I look at you and you look at me and we say, well, I'm just going to do whatever Steve does and Steve's going to do whatever Sean does and we're just going to make that the way we try to stay in sync. Or maybe we take it to another level and we say, this church needs to imitate the church down the street. You know, the, the one that's real big, that's growing fast, they've built a new building every two years, and now they've got so many people, they have people conducting traffic in the parking lot. Well, that seems successful. Let's do what they do. That's harmonious, right? That's like-minded in action, isn't it? Or perhaps we just adopt a strategy. We look at what the world in general is doing, some church movement of some kind, some, some latest alignment of the church that we can just adopt wholesale and make ourselves part of this movement. That's what like-minded must be, right? Those are the ways the church aligns with one another. You see, the problem here is we need something to align with, yes, but we have to pick the right thing. So the question is, what do we align with? A.W. Tozer, who you may know as a very accomplished and, and well-thought-of theologian in the Christian church, he put it to us this way in this very interesting example. He says, that it, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to one another? They are all of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be if they were to try to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. See the beauty of that? Turning to Christ means listening to the Holy Spirit, listening to God's Word. We are tuned together. We are united in purpose if that becomes our tuning fork. We are completely out of tune if we look to one another or if we look to other churches or to church movements as the solution for unity of purpose. Because all we've done is taken a room of 100 pianos and said these two tune together and these two tune together and these two tune together. Now let's see how it sounds when we all play. That's not unity of purpose. You want to be an effective ambassador for Christ in your own life? You, you want to find support and encouragement in your own walk? as you try to be an effective ambassador? You want to forge strong relationships within the body of Christ so that you would be effective like three strands in a cord? You want to do that? You want to stand against the power of the enemy when he comes to assault that effort at work, at being an ambassador? Well, we do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Yes, that's true for sure. But we'll do even more. We'll do far more as a family united with the Spirit 
than we could ever hope to do as single, solitary, isolated Christians who just kind of show up whenever we feel like it, do our little bit and go home. You'll get something out of it, but you'll get this much compared to what God is prepared to do if you would work with him in a unified church. Peter's second word, sympathetic. The word sympathetic here, it it means something deeper than what you may assume it to mean. It doesn't mean just empathy. It means suffering together in the Greek. To join, literally, in the trials and in the sorrow that were becoming increasingly common for Christians in Peter's day, in the day he wrote this letter. That's such a powerful distinction for the Christian. You cannot overestimate how powerful it is in our witness if we were to communicate the love of God to somebody who's hurting, to somebody who's in a difficult situation. In Peter's day, what that meant specifically was the church being persecuted under Nero at the very beginning of that, at the time he wrote this letter, The church was supposed to be ready to be sympathetic with a response. You see how sympathy is more than just a thought or a feeling? It it goes back to action again. What are you doing when you encounter somebody who's in one of these situations? In their day, it was persecution, which led to, to two major issues for a Jew, particularly Jews in that day who had come to know the Lord. Number one, they were abandoned by families. If you were a Jew who had believed in Christ for your Messiah, The rest of your Jewish family looked at you as a nut and they essentially pushed you outside fellowship within the family. So you lost your family, which was a very difficult thing to do in that society. Secondly, you're disenfranchised from the Jewish culture overall. You're put outside the fellowship of Israel. So you lost your friends. You lost your community. You lost your business relationships. You lost everything, potentially, for this strange movement that you wanted to become a part of. Think about how much sympathy somebody like that required. And think about what James says in his letter, right? The one who says they are hungry and you say, well, I'll pray for you. Go off, be, you know, be filled and be warm. And they say, what good is that? He says, feed the guy. <laughs> Give the guy clothes if you're sympathetic. What does the world do when someone suffers? If you want to contrast what God is calling us to do as an ambassador, standing apart from the world, in the face of suffering, what does the world do? Ask yourself that question. The world plays something I call the blame game. They assume that the unfortunate circumstances are a sign of guilt, directly or indirectly. Bad things happen to us, it's proof that we've done something wrong. You know, we use terms like karma or, or you know, some cosmic justice or whatever terms are popular today. But the world's thinking is, is simply that when you have things happening bad to you, if I pick apart your life long enough, if I ask enough questions, I'll eventually get to the point where I'll understand, aha, that's what you did wrong. Your kids are running off with drugs or staying out all night and getting caught by the police doing bad things. Well, it must be your parenting skills. Well, it may very well have had something to do with your parenting skills, but is that the Christian sympathetic response to someone who's going through suffering in their life? Have you improved your witness by being Dr. Spock and pulling apart their life? And by the way, if they were to reverse roles with you, would you have a perfect parenting experience to show them? See, it's the log in your own eye problem again. Sympathy doesn't begin with an examination of what went wrong. Sympathy doesn't look for wrong, per se. There'll be a time for that, maybe. What sympathy is more interested in is, what can I do to ease your suffering? What can I do to help you through your difficult time? The world's thinking, I think, is best reflected by the title of a popular book that came out years and years ago. The title was, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. You heard that phrase? It it dealt with this mystery that the world has with why do bad things happen to good people? Well, of course, their assumption is the problem. Their assumption is that there are good people. When the Bible clearly says there are none who are good, no, not one. That's another sermon, though. We'll save that for another time. Now, there is some truth to their assumption. I should give them at least some credit. 
When we do the wrong thing, when we do bad things, when we sin, yeah, we're going to expect negative consequences to come. That, that's not wrong to assume that. That's normal. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. That's a biblical principle. You do bad things, better than even chance, bad things are going to come back because sin has consequences. That's nothing surprising. But because that's true does not mean that the opposite is also true. Because it's true that when you do bad things, bad things happen, does not mean that when you do good things, good things happen. There's no biblical principle to support that. I mean, think about that for a minute. If that were literally the case, that when you do good things, good meaning what God sees as good, if you're always doing nothing but good in your life, you would expect only good things to happen, then how do you explain the apostles? How do you explain Paul? How do you explain John the Baptist? How do you explain the first martyr, Stephen, and all the many martyrs that followed after him? How do you explain Jesus himself? I mean, he is the ultimate example of bad things happening to good people. Wouldn't you agree? The only sinless man who ever lived, killed on a cross. So if you're going to stand before somebody, either for your own sake or whether to support a friend in the midst of some kind of suffering, be careful about slipping into this mindset in the world that says, even if it's only to yourself, that they must have done something wrong because bad things mean you did bad. Yeah, that's true, but it could be that they did exactly the right thing and bad came nonetheless. Bad in the sense of suffering. Bad in the sense of something we don't want to see. John chapter 15 gives us this biblical principle in, in a very clear way. Jesus' words. He says, John 15:17. This I command you, love one another. If the world hates you, he says, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, then they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do for you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also." Let me sum that up for you. His summation statement is, is, is basically this. The enemy, the prince of the power of this world, is, and, and those he works through, which are the sons of disobedience, Paul calls them, the, the children of the devil, the, the unbelievers of this uh, world, of which we were all once one of them. Those people, and the enemy through them, wants to attack Christ. What the enemy cares about is, the enemy, is his eternal enemy, Christ. But Christ is not physically present on the earth right now. He's come and gone to return, yes, but in the meantime, he's not here. So who's he going to attack instead? Remember, the enemy has been thrown down to the earth. He is, he is, this is his dominion. This is where he lives. So who's he going to attack if the enemy only has us? He's going to attack those who stand in Christ's place. Remember, ambassador? Remember, you're here in place of him? In that case, you should expect that the more you look like Christ, the more of a target you are to the enemy. And that's exactly what John 15 was teaching. Remember, when they persecute you, they did it to me first. Don't be surprised. I've heard it said, I don't know if it's a good rule, but I think it's fair. If you're not suffering for your faith in any way at all, it's probably a sign that your faith is invisible. Because the enemy doesn't obviously need to spend a lot of time on an ambassador that never leaves his house or never goes anywhere in any way to represent Christ. 
You know who Voltaire is? He was a French philosopher uh, of the early 18th century, and he was uh, famous for his atheist beliefs and for teaching his atheist beliefs. And toward the very end of his life, as his death was approaching, and he was obviously going to die soon, um, a Christian, unknown who this person was, advised Voltaire that he should forswear and reject Satan once and for all while he still had chance. And Voltaire declined, saying, this is no time to make new enemies. Well, it's a shame he didn't take him up on the offer, but that's exactly the right point of view, isn't it? Once you become a Christian, you make Satan your enemy. It's exactly right. So we know that tragedy is simply going to be a part of the life we live, either because of our consequences of sin or either because of what we believe and show in the world. And he says, Peter says, we need to join others in the faith in that suffering when we see it taking place. That's part of what it means to be an ambassador. Third, we're going to look at the next two objectives together, adjectives together. We're going to look at brotherly and kind-hearted together because they really work together in the way Peter is using them here. The first word, brotherly, this is not Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. This is Philadelphos. This is being brotherly. This is a word that literally means seeing the others in the body of Christ as your sibling. Seeing them as your sibling, whether a brother or whether a sister. So, now that we are all born again into this family, by the Holy Spirit, we exist as one family for all of eternity. That means that those in this room who are believers, by faith, will forever be siblings. Forever. Now, to begin it, and then on into eternity. And just in case you had a strained relationship with your siblings, and so you're a little confused about what it means to have a sibling relationship, maybe you're not sure that's the kind of model you really want to have with some of the people in your church depending on who your siblings were? Well, that's why I think he follows it up with the second word, kind-hearted. What does a kind-hearted sibling relationship look like then? What kind of relationship are we talking about? Well, how about some of these things? Number one, enjoy each other's company. Treat each other like you actually enjoy being in each other's company. Longing for that company, in fact. Kind of an affectionate desire to be together. Look out for one another. You know, the, the brother looks out for the sister, or the older brother looks out for the younger brother. I mean, there's a clear... Uh, intent on the part of one to watch out for the needs of the other and to counsel and to correct even if necessary. They defend one another. An argument or a disagreement doesn't end the relationship. How many people in churches have either left churches or have left fellowship with others in the church simply over some kind of issue or disagreement or or fault or, or something that happened in the course of that relationship? What Peter is saying here is, though you may fight with your brother and your sister, the fight doesn't mean they're less your brother or sister. And you still have to see each other at Thanksgiving. You still have to get together once in a while and send birthday cards once in a while. And that's the fact of what it means to be a sibling, or at least it should be. No different in the body of Christ. In fact, I would say some of us have probably either never had a sibling relationship, or if we had them, they were strained and they really aren't close to us. And if that's true, let me tell you that your sibling relationship in the body of Christ may be the only true sibling relationship you've ever had. And it's certainly going to be a much more lasting one, certainly one that's much longer lasting. Look what Jesus says about his own physical family in relationship to his spiritual family. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus was still speaking to the crowds, and behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak with him. This is Mary and her natural children by Joseph. Someone said to Jesus, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Jesus answered the one who was telling him, saying, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. This is Jesus talking about Mary and talking about Mary's natural children and saying, you know what? You think they're my mother and my brothers? You're wrong. Now, I don't think that he was dismissing Mary or his brothers. We know that Mary was a faithful believer. We know that James, for example, one of his brothers, wrote a letter of the New Testament, became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. They became his mother and his brothers by faith. But when he turned to his own disciples and said, they are my mother and my brothers, what he's saying very clearly is that the family relationship by faith is the true family relationship, eternally speaking. And the ones we have been granted physically for the time being, they have value. We are to honor those relationships. We are to love those in our family. And we pray by faith they will join the eternal family with us. But if they don't, eternally, they will not be in your family. And that's a hard thing. That should be a motivating thing. That should be the thing that drives us to bring the gospel to those in our family on a repeated basis in the hope that they would join the true eternal family that we know. Finally, humble in spirit. This is simple. Just don't think too highly of yourself. Humble in spirit. It can often be used as a term for when somebody comes to faith, they're humbled in spirit, they come to a repentant moment, they believe the gospel. That's true. But Peter's talking to believers here in the church. So he's moved beyond that. He's talking here about having come to faith, what does humble in spirit look like to a believer? If you look at Scripture, there are differences in gifting. There are differences in roles. There are differences based on age or in maturity. All of that is spelled out in Scripture in one place or another. But if you go back and look at those references, you'll notice none of them make any distinction in the sense of privilege or status one over another. Just because I may know more about how to teach and you know more about how to pray or you're a better evangelist than I am, those distinctions are useful but not for the purpose of establishing status or uh, in some way privilege within the body of Christ. That's not how they are to be used. We are all one body working together. But on the other hand, the world. The world does use those kinds of things to draw distinction for the express purpose of showing off. Do you understand that's the world? The world knows that it's all about who you are. It's all about what you drive. It's all about your zip code. It's all about the title on your business card, the size of your office. Those things matter to the world. Why? Because indirectly, by association, we assume they say something about us and our worth, our merit. I'm a better, more valuable, more honor-praiseworthy person because I happen to have a certain kind of lifestyle. Because I carry myself a certain way. Because I have a certain degree from a certain university. The world's trying to distinguish itself from others on the basis of this value. And to quote Solomon, it's all vanity. It's all vanity. Look at how Paul... You want an example out of how the church is supposed to live? Let me just give you an example out of Paul and Apollos. And then we'll move on. Just look at this one example. This is Paul writing in 2 Corinthians. But he's speaking about we in this part of the letter. And he's talking about himself and Apollos. He says... In verse uh, 4 of chapter 3, he says, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is Paul, probably the greatest theologian in the history of the church. Speaking about himself and Apollos, who was said to be the most accomplished, the greatest orator of the early church. He's your quintessential evangelist of the early church. These two men, he says, were nothing. We're nothing. 
If you think we did something good, if you think my writing is helpful, if you think Apollos' speaking is helpful, then what you're really saying is God did something interesting and worthwhile through them and through me, speaking as Paul. And the same would be no different for me standing up here or for anyone else in this room. So when you go to work as an ambassador of Christ and you play the world's game, I am who I am because of how I dress, where I live, what I drive, where I work, all that you want to throw into the basket of worth, all you're doing is repeating the mistakes of a prideful, sinful, fallen world. It's all vanity. What the ambassador would do is, remember, live like they're from the country they came from, represent the values and the customs of where they come from. Our home is in heaven, so our customs and culture come from there. When the credit comes your way, that's your opportunity to say, well, thank you, but you know, God's doing the work. Thank you, I, I, I look to God to be able to accomplish that, because I know I couldn't do it on my own. What have you just done? First and foremost, you've correctly placed yourself in the right position in respect to God. You've acknowledged He's the one doing good, not you, which is true. Secondly, you've opened up an opportunity for witness. You've introduced into that conversation a discussion that is not what they expected, to be sure, and secondly, not what the world says, and therefore it's different and it's noteworthy and it might catch them off guard and it gives you an opportunity to continue in that conversation further. The church has a powerful witness for Christ when it lives in a humble way. While the world around you is boasting of all that it can do and, and all that it's achieved and all that it's worth, etc., and you're standing there in response to that saying, well, I don't have really anything to do except what God can do with me, the striking difference just will automatically draw people to ask questions. It has to. It is such a striking difference from the world. What a shame it would be if the world comes to us when they're suffering and they need support or they need some guidance or advice and all they see reflected in us is what the world is already telling them. Where's the distinction in that? Why come to us under those circumstances? They can just go to anyone. If we give them what the world gives them, we're just one of the world. We should stand out as ambassadors. Look what Paul said, or Peter says rather in chapter 3, verse 9, as I've read already. He says, Don't return evil for evil, or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead, for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. What he's saying here in a sense is, or in a nutshell, is don't treat others with the kind of contempt that the world typically will use when it's facing somebody who's doing something they don't like. He's referring here, when he says, you were chosen for a blessing, he's referring here to what God did for us specifically. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, kind of echoes this same sentiment. Paul says, God demonstrated his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God showed us mercy even while we were still busy hating him. Now, you may not have thought of it that way. You may not have remembered standing around one day saying, gosh, I hate God. But by your life, you demonstrated that you hated him. By your unwillingness to bend your knee, you were living in a, in a proud, opposed manner. That is hating God by, by the definition of Scripture. That's what the sin in the garden produced in all of us. But God looked upon us in that moment, and what did we hear out of Romans chapter 5? While we were busy hating him and showing him contempt, he saved us. He showed us mercy while we were busy showing him hatred. He repaid our hatred with kindness. All right, so if God could do that for us, all he's doing in chapter 3, verse 9 here, is asking us to do the same thing. He's not asking us to do more. He's not asking us to go out you know, above and beyond. He's just saying to each one of you in this room right now, hey, if you'll just do to the world what I did to you, you'll be good. All he's saying is, what injury could anyone do you today that you can't return with kindness because 
your, your kindness meter is filled. You've kind of had enough. Yeah, okay, I can only give so much a day. Kind of tapped out. You get the last. Well, he says, just do what I did for you. Where did your hatred stop before I showed you kindness? It never did. And he did it not just for you, but for all who would believe. You have that as your standard. Can you measure up? That's how you be an ambassador. And just in case you're thinking this is new, Peter then goes on to quote out of Psalms chapter 34 and verse 10. He says, For the one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In other words, God's people have always been told to do good. This is not a new commandment. If you will desire a good, satisfying life, as the psalmist put it, meaning one that is seeking the righteousness of the Lord, if you'll make that your goal, however imperfectly, imperfectly we carry it out, what we will find then is that the Lord hears our prayers and that the Lord knows what we're doing. We find favor with God. And because we find favor with God, we have this privilege to be heard by God. We know that He is taking note of when we do good. And it does not necessarily follow that we will see good happen to us, to be sure. But we can take comfort in the fact that God in heaven knows our good and there is an eternal account being credited to us. Look where Peter goes next. He says in verse 13, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. He says, who can harm you if you prove zealous? Another word for that is if you become, if you become what is good. Who can harm you? This is similar to something else Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who is against us? That's what Peter's saying. I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Peter didn't just make some kind of promise. He didn't just say to you that if you're zealous for what is good, you'll always have a peaceful life. He did not say that. What he did in quoting out of Psalms 34 is to say what Paul said, speaking in an eternal sense, what reason do we have truly to fear if we do good? Because when a believer becomes zealous to do what's good, God notices and credits his account, as I just said. So what harm can come to you eternally? Can that treasure that you've stored up by being zealous for good, can it be put at risk? No. Secondly, what you're achieving in being an ambassador, in being that one who stands out for good, ultimately won't be measured in how good your life is. I find it very fascinating that there is a culture out there that accepts teaching that says, among other things, that uh, if you have enough faith, you'll always be healed from whatever illness might come upon you. You've heard people teaching this kind of principle before? Perhaps it's on the TV if you haven't seen it locally. So there's a lot of this, if you just pray in the name of Jesus, you will be healed. And when somebody does not pray in the, or does not get healed, the excuse is, well, you didn't pray, you didn't have enough faith, you didn't actually claim God's favor like you're supposed to. There's all these catchphrases they use. Think about the absurdity of that. What happens when that person who's been healed a hundred times by faith finally dies? As we all will. When that death comes, what's the answer to that? Well, they didn't pray hard enough on the last day? Their faith ran out? 
You see the absurdity of it, right? There is no promise in God's Word that your physical body will be preserved indefinitely. And if that's true, then any promise that I claim out of Scripture that says that if I only have enough faith, God will always heal my body, is inevitably going to be proven false on the day I die. Because God is not about making us eternal in this physical body. It's a false teaching. It misuses Scripture in order to arrive at that point. Similarly, when Peter turns around and says, if you're zealous for good, what harm can come to you? He's clearly not talking about our physical body because we all understand the the inevitability of death and aging and all that happens in this world. What he's talking about is all that matters, which is eternal. If your focus is on the eternal, then you truly won't fear what happens to you in the temporal. If your focus is on the temporal, yeah, you're going to be pretty miserable. A lot of days are going to be miserable. You're not going to make as much money. You're not going to have as nice a house. Your friends are going to turn their back on you. You're going to get sick. You're going to get old. You're going to lose your basketball skills, which is my biggest problem these days. That's the reality of a fallen world. It's going away. It's going to be replaced. Get ready for it. Meanwhile, think about what's eternal, and you won't be disappointed. You certainly won't have reason to be fearful. Those things are kept for you for a day that you cannot lose. So consider that. Peter himself acknowledges the reality of that in his very next verse, the one I've already read. He says, in the next verse, verse, bad things may happen from time to time. He says, you may suffer for the sake of righteousness, but nevertheless, he says, don't be troubled. Even he himself says, hey, if you're zealous for good, what do you have to fear? But then he goes on to say, but hey, if it does happen that you get into some bad situations because of righteousness, he says, just don't be troubled by them. He himself acknowledges the reality of what may come. He quotes here out of Isaiah. I won't go into that for very long except to just note that what God was telling Isaiah was in the midst of Isaiah's pity party over the fact that no one was listening to him as he went about telling God's word. God responded with these words to Isaiah saying, don't be troubled. I've got this under control. Yeah, they're not going to listen. That's part of the plan. Don't worry about it. They're going to be judged for their sin. He says, sanctify Christ, which means set Christ apart in our hearts, which is, to put it in simple language, Live according to the holiness of Christ. Do that in your life during these periods of persecution. So when you meet with persecution, when you meet with trouble and difficulty in your life, respond by living out as Christ himself would have lived out that moment. The phrase that's popular today, what would Jesus do? That's basically what he's saying. In the midst of those moments of persecution, respond the way Christ did. And if you're not sure how he would respond, think about what he did when he was getting beaten to death. Think about what he, was being, what, what he was doing when he was getting nailed to a cross. The, the Christ of the universe, the Messiah, the Creator. You know, it's been said, they didn't nail him to the cross, he put himself there. Because truth be told, he could have stopped the whole process at any moment with one word. Think about what it took for him to go through that knowing that at any moment he could have spoken a word and the whole thing would have stopped. Ten thousand angels would have shown up to save him. Think about that. And yet he kept going. So, in light of what you and I might face in our walk, He's saying, just put on the sanctity of Christ. Be like Christ. Do what he would have done in that same situation. Why? Then that famous verse in verse 15. If you do that, the world around you is going to look at you in the midst of your suffering and sorrow and persecution, doing very unworldly things in response, and they're going to turn to you and they're going to ask you to explain yourself. They're going to ask you to explain this hope that you have in the midst of your otherwise hopeless circumstances. And they're going to ask you to give an account. The word here in the Greek is apologia. It's where we get apologetics from. An account. An explanation for why you react the way you do. 
Some believe that what he's saying here is that you should have ready at all times this clear recollection of what path you took to become a believer, of how you became saved. And so at any moment, if someone asks for a defense or this apologia, you're going to respond by saying, well, let me tell you about how I became a Christian. Well, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying you shouldn't know that or that that's not helpful. I'm just saying that's not what Peter's asking for. That's not what Peter is saying. The word apologia, apologetics, means giving a defense of the gospel. Defending your faith in the sense of being able to explain to somebody the story of the gospel. This is not a story of how I came to Christ. This is a story of how Christ came to men. This is not a story or an explanation of how I was saved. This is an explanation of how you can be saved. See the difference? That's what we are all to be ready for, be prepared for, in the event that somebody notices that we don't react the same way to the world. And he's saying, be prepared. Preparation for this moment doesn't come just because you wish that you'll be ready. Preparation means a study of church history. Preparation means a study of church doctrines, of the church heroes. Fundamentally, it means a study of Scripture. You know, you'll have an opportunity to study Philippians. You'll have an opportunity in here to study with a men's or women's group. If you are not, right now, in a weekly Bible study, whether it's an individual study that you are disciplined in yourself, or it's a group study with some other group that can hold you accountable, if that's not a part of your life right now, I'm telling you, on the authority of Scripture, you need to get into a Bible study. And not just because these are being offered, but because it is your Christian duty, it is my Christian duty to study the Word of God regularly because it is the means by which God has given to the church to grow us, to mature us, to encourage us, to bring us to a place of usefulness for Him. It will not happen because you want it to happen. It will only happen because you devote yourself to it. If you want to be a doctor, what do you have to do? If you want to be a lawyer, what do you have to do? If you want to do anything of any merit or substance in this world, what do you have to do? You have to go to school, you have to learn, you have to prepare, you have to take it seriously and devote time. If you honestly walk out of here today telling yourself, I want to be a good Christian, but you don't study what it means to know Christianity and its faith and the faith in general, then who are you fooling but yourself? That's the call on our lives. Peter is saying, be different, stand out in the right ways, be an ambassador, but then it does no good, folks, if we've gone to all that effort to stand out and draw attention to Christ in the right way. And then the moment comes and someone says, you're different, why? And we don't have an answer. Not a biblical answer. That's what we're called to do, to be different so that we could lead people to know the Lord. But that doesn't always work, does it? If you know it's not going to work, or if you suspect it's not going to work, maybe is the way I should put it, if you're worried that this is not someone who's going to receive the message, even if I were to give it to them right now, Peter gives us two reasons why we give the message, even if and even when they reject it. He says, number one, it serves to contradict their slanderous claims against believers. That, In other words, the one doing good and testifying of Christ will inevitably be able to refute false charges of improper behavior levied against us when we defend ourselves appropriately out of Scripture for doing good for the right reason. Secondly, it because, it, our willingness to testify to Christ even in the face of unbelief is so that we would stand as a testimony against unbelief. For the unbeliever who would reject our message, our testimony becomes evidence against them at the trial judgment. I mean, it's a sobering thought, but it's the, it's the plain facts. It's the reality. You don't know what God's doing. You don't know if in the way He's brought circumstances to bear in your life, you're there to stand as a testimony to bring men to faith. 
We hope so, but it could just as easily be the case that we're there to stand as testimony against them at their judgment. That's in God's hands. That's not in our hands. Our faithfulness is to declare the hope that is within us and why we have that hope. That's all. And not to prejudge its purpose. Dear Father, thank you, Father, for the patience of those who hear this morning. Thank you, Father, for the power of the Spirit in, his, in your word this morning. And, Father, may we leave this morning ready to do the work of the ambassadorship you've given us. I pray, Father, we would be a a kind, gentle, humble spirit in this world. I pray, Father, that you would convict us on those times in life when we are not trusting in you, we are not sympathetic enough to our brothers in the Lord, that we would uh, put faith in ourselves and not in you. We pray, Father, for forgiveness for the times we've not devoted to study and preparation as you would expect, but we ask, Father, for opportunity in the future and then the courage to step into those opportunities. And we pray, Father, for this fellowship that we've been called to be a part of for a time, however long, that we would be here, Father, in spirit and in effort and in wisdom and in our gifting, that we would not come, Father, merely as a spectator, but we would come, Father, to serve so that your work might be done. Father, send us out from here refreshed and ready to work in the field. And may we find fruit in that work. And if it be your will, Father, please return us here next week to complete this study. We thank you, Father, and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.